0: I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Okay, here we go. We are going to talk about puberty today. And... As the mother of a preteen and a teenager, this is something that I am deeply in the throes of right now. So when given the opportunity to interview leading experts on puberty and adolescence, I jumped at the chance. And yes, this may be a little bit self-serving because this is something I'm dealing with. However, I assume there are lots of women out there who are dealing with or soon will be dealing with, the same issues. That is why I am so excited about this interview with Vanessa Kroll-Bennett, who is a friend and our kids are friends. She's the parent of four children. And Dr. Kara Natterson, who wrote the book Decoding Boys. She's a pediatrician, She wrote that amazing book, The Guy's Guide, which I loved and my kids really loved, and it really started the conversation about growing up and opened that door for me. So this is an amazing opportunity. They are the hosts of the Puberty Podcast, which if you haven't listened, you should. We share a podcast producer, Brian Peoples, and I am so excited to help support them as they launch their new book. This is So Awkward, which is the ultimate guide for adults helping tweens and teens navigate the roller coaster of puberty. And it really is a roller coaster. It is so emotional to be the parent of children who are going through their own emotional, mental, physical growth. And when they're little, you know it's the tooth and it's all these different phases But as they grow older, it's just, it's hard. I I find this a very difficult time because in many ways, you're dealing with kids who are so volatile, nasty, quiet, emotional, stinky, all of the things. And it's stressful and it also brings up so much within you as an adult looking back at yourself in those ages and all the fears and the emotions and the cringiness and it's like you just want to protect your child and there is nothing that you can do besides help them and so this guide is the way for parents to deal with some of their own issues in this time have those tricky conversations and help their kids in a way that's actually positive and helpful and not going to create more problems and more issues down the line or traumatize yourself and your child. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so grateful that they took the time to be here, and I hope that this is relevant to the audience. I know that it's very relevant to me. To start and just get it out on the table. (laughs) We all share a producer. We share friends. Our kids are friends. So there is a level of familiarity and camaraderie here that if it seems like you're sitting in on a conversation between friends, you are. No so boundaries.
1: No boundaries today. Thank you for
0: being here. <laughs> and Cara, you're a doctor. So... I understand why you're focused on puberty. <laughs> Vanessa, what in the world would make a person think that puberty is... a? Let's just dive into puberty and own it. I'm like, I want to run as far away as possible as the as a parent of two people in puberty.
1: Okay. Besides the fact that I get to work with Cara all day, every day, which is reason enough to work in puberty. It, I am it, very fun. She, she's very fun and very smart. So I grew up in a house where we talked about bodies and puberty all the time, all day long. And my brother and I used to have sleepovers with friends and we would read all the puberty books, like where did I come from and what's happening to me? And we had a mother who would say things like, your pleasure is really important to just remember that. So like, that's the house I grew up in. If my mother was here, she would like do it with like a popped collar and say it really calmly and confidently. Did that make
0: puberty better,
1: having that mom? Um, It made it like something you could talk about. Like there was no shame. Everything was on the table. I'm one of four and some members of my family would say TMI. But I felt like we could talk about anything and everything. And there was like nothing that went unspoken about that stuff. And then I... Started a company called Dynamo Girl, which used sports to build girl self esteem. And I noticed within a few years that my second and third and fourth grade girls that we were coaching all around New York, many of them were in puberty. And they were in puberty long before I expected to have girls in my sports classes. In puberty. And it turned out it wasn't just the dynamo girls, it was girls across the country. Puberty starts two years earlier than it used to, at least. So, on average, the average age now is between eight and nine for girls to start puberty. So, I was like, well, if I'm using sports to build girl self esteem, I kind of need to address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that they are in changing bodies and their parents are not expecting it. So, we started running puberty workshops, and that is how I got connected. Takara. The other side note, which Jenny, you may or may not know, and it might freak you out even more, is that my brother also works in puberty. My brother. I do know this. Yes, So he's the co-creator of Big Mouth. His name is Nick Kroll. And he, for those of you who have not watched Big Mouth, which if you have tweens and teens in your house, I'd be shocked, but his show is all about puberty and adolescence. It's just animated and slightly more bizarre than the work we do at the Puberty Podcast.
0: I think that Gavin learned about puberty from watching Big Mouth. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's how... And it's a fantastic show, and it's really funny, but it's so cringy. Like, the entire experience of Puberty is cringy, but that (laughs) show, too, you're like... It's like being thrown into a vortex of, like, your own experience at that age. And I had the opposite parent, where, like, I'm one of four, too, but my mom... I mean, I hope she's not listening. My mom would like get us all in the car and then like find in the most unbelievably awkward way possible the way to be like, and you have to use condoms. And if you, get, if you get pregnant, you have to have more. And it was like, you wanted to die. Like the conversation wasn't smooth or cool or like comfortable in any way. And so Cara, I want to know from you, why are kids going through puberty earlier? and is it just girls? Cause like I have an eighth grade boy and and it doesn't seem like those boys, there's one or two that have kind of gone through puberty, but a lot of the boys still look young for their ages.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think you've hit on the biggest question, which is what does puberty look like and how do we figure out when it's happening to the kids in our lives? So boys are going through puberty sooner than they ever did as well. In fact, The way I would frame it actually is that we have all this data from the 1940s and 50s and 60s that says puberty starts for girls at around 11 and for boys at around 11 and a half. And by starting, what that means is girls start to develop breasts and boys start to have penile and testicular growth. So that was the data. And now the revised data And I should say, this is not new information. We started getting this information as long ago as 2010 for the most revised numbers. Girls are entering puberty between eight and nine, as Vanessa said. They are starting to develop breasts on average between eight and nine, and boys between nine and 10. And that data has been around since 2012. And so You may wonder why you don't know this, right? Why is it not in the general sphere of information? And the answer is because with girls, we can see it. Those breast buds poke out of everything. They also have mood swings, and those mood swings often tend to be noticeable. They're giggling a lot, they're crying a lot. The volume on drama is turned up. For boys, they're just having penile and testicular growth. And it's happening very slowly, but very surely for the vast majority of them starting when they're nine or 10. Now there are going to be boys who start puberty late for sure. And by late, we still mean after 14. Right now, that's the definition of being a late bloomer for a boy. But by the time they're nine or 10, they're usually getting private and they're covering up and you've no idea what's happening under their underpants. They also have mood swings. It turns out those mood swings are not noticeable. <laughs> Although I think they're noticeable not to you, noticeable. Jenny. <laughs> so, but people don't recognize that the silence and the sort of the swing to a little bit of aggression or rage, and then the swing to silence or shutting you out is their representation of a mood swing. And when you stop and think about it, you might be like, oh yeah, my fourth or fifth grade boy is definitely doing that. So that's what it looks like. To answer your question of why no one really knows, I mean, I wish I could tell you, but no one really knows. There are a lot of really smart people who are trying to figure out the answer to this. The short answer is, it is probably everything we put into and onto our bodies that is disrupting the endocrine system, the hormone system in our bodies. So it could be cosmetics, it could be things that we eat or drink, it could be things that we breathe. Also stress Plays a big role because stress causes a cortisol release, which actually impacts the onset of puberty. And antibiotic use plays a big role, less the antibiotics you take, although that's a player, but more the antibiotic that is used in, say, poultry and beef raising. So all of the meat proteins that are harvested in this country, there are huge antibiotic exposures. And there's data being collected now showing that that probably impacts it as well. So um, this is a hard one because there are lots of very big reasons why it's happening. It almost feels too big to do anything about.
0: It's really interesting that you say this. And you are the author of Decoding Boys, and you also wrote that amazing boy guy stuff book, which is was one of the early books that I, you know, had on the shelf and putting it around like (laughs) Aliza Pressman said I'm supposed to
2: do and all the things. I tried that too, Jenny, and it didn't work so well in my house. (laughs) You know what I
0: did? It was amazing. Actually, it was like one of my like, best mom moments. I bought one of those books. And at the time, Gavin, it was before his first summer at camp. And I was like, I need him to know the basics and he refused to listen to it and he was like i just want to watch youtube and like learn from my friends and i was like that is not what's happening i recorded myself reading the book out loud and i called it mom tube and i was like here put on these headphones and just listen to this
1: and oh my it, god and i made
0: him listen to the entire story of like me showing him how like you reading get out loud
2: the book an olympic medal in parenting Oh I mean, I thought he was going to
0: (laughs)
1: die. It
2: was great. I just thought
1: you were going to say you left it in the bathroom because that's where they spend 90% of their time anyways.
0: It was a book. He would never read that. He would never open a book. Like, you know, even Um, if it looked
1: like it was... That is so funny. We actually did the audio book for This Is So Awkward. And I'm like wondering if our kids will listen to any... And all of it, or if they're just like Vanessa. I know. I know. Hope so. You're not wondering
0: you're dreaming. So so here's a question I have for you two as parents. I know how unbelievably cringy my kids think I am when (laughs) I try to have these conversations. Like what happens? Cause you know, I know Ozzy, what happens when like, that's your mom? I actually asked my kids in the elevator. I was like, how much worse would this be? <laughs> I was an expert in puberty. Like, would you guys die? Like, what did they say? What did Gavin talk say? about Your mood swing. Oh he, my God. He, I don't know. He thought you were kind of cool. Just so you know, I think he thought as long as it's not your own parent,
2: When I taught my daughter sex ed in her sixth grade class, she was literally under the desk. You taught at
0: her school? Under. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, that's horrible. I suggested it was a grit building experience. And maybe she would write her college essay about it. She took a hard pass on that. Yeah. That's amazing, actually.
1: (laughs) Well, my kids were older when I... Not Ozzy, but my older kids were older because Ozzy's the fourth. So my older kids were like well enough along where they just basically are like, so mom, I'm really proud of you, but please don't ever tag me in anything ever. Like I don't want anyone to know, but our fee, our reels show up in their friends for you pages. So like, My kids will get screenshots of me like talking about penises.
0: I I love it so much. I get made fun of where everything I do, like my kids be like, oh, it's the second shift. Let's like march for women. (laughs) Like they're constantly like teasing me and making fun of me because yeah, the things come through and they'll be like work, work, work and women and you know, whatever they can make fun of.
1: They're like, oh, is this a new blog post? But I will say that they are, and Cara and I had our two oldest kids. We did a podcast episode with them where we interviewed them about like what it felt like. And they mocked us so mercilessly in between telling us how proud they were that we did the work that we do. So I think there's like both things are- Both and- True. And I think there'll be like a lot of therapy bills in the
2: future for having us as parents. I was at parent day at my kid's school this past weekend. And the deans did this little presentation before the day kicked off. And they were talking about individuation and how kids this age try to push their parents away and how, you know, just reassuring parents, it's totally normal. And this one woman raised her hand and she said, I'm a psychiatrist. And the other day my son said to me, I can't believe people pay you for your advice. <laughs> so I was gonna
0: ask, as experts, does it make the sting any less painful when it's your child and you're like, no, I know that they're just, you know, going through puberty. So this telling me to get out of their room. Yeah. I'm not gonna take it personally.
2: Yes and no. I mean, I think. We are lucky. This is our insider baseball. We know what's coming, so nothing surprises us. But I think, you know, I certainly take my professional hat off at home. And so I make all the same mistakes everyone else makes because my role at home is parent, not expert. And you know, you settle into that role very quickly and you can find yourself. So the slamming of the door and the rolling of the eyes don't surprise me, but I still make all the same mistakes that everyone else makes. It's hard to implement what you know when you take your professional hat off.
1: And I think like it's impossible to be an expert at parenting. Like I think we can be expert in other things, but when you work in the parenting space, I think it's really dangerous to call yourself an expert in that particular field because it is so filled with fallibility and we screw up all the time. I spend most of my time thinking about every time we interview an expert, like a true expert, you know, like a neuropsychologist or an endocrinologist or whatever. I just think about all the things I did wrong. Like my husband says, I'm like at this stage now where at night I turn to him and he knows it's coming before I even open my mouth. And it's like, basically sounds like do you ever wonder if we should have done? And then I like insert some major life decision about that we decided. And he's like, I just need you to stop second guessing like every choice we ever made. Cause like, we're okay. Everybody's okay. And it's all going to be fine.
2: Vanessa turning 50 cures you of that.
1: Oh, really? Well, oh, I, have years, so uh-huh. I have three more years.
2: So I have three more years of rumination. And I know, but then you like, something happens. You blow out the candles and you're like, oh, okay.
1: You're so just like, up. oh, let me just watch my body <laughs> fall apart instead. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> let me focus
1: on me. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So I told a lot of parents, people I work with, people who I have coffee with in the morning every day. So I said, what are the questions that you have? So here were the questions that came up this morning. Oh, I'm so excited. In my very small subset of people who want to know. Talking about girls, all these girls are obsessed with skincare. And when we talk about puberty and all these things, like how bad is it that they're putting on basically like hardcore chemicals and things onto little girl skin? And they're obsessed with like 10 step routines. I mean, I guess we kind of had that. Like, if I think about it, we went to Bath and Body Works or whatever and slathered crap all over ourselves. But is this something that we should be concerned about with these kids with the makeup? I, you know, and-
2: I don't know that there's a study to answer the question, but I'll say that common sense and sort of the historical record would suggest that what we put onto our bodies was far less regulated, far less clean. There was lots of stuff that we used in the past that hindsight being twenty twenty, would have been better if we didn't use. I don't know about you, but I very much remember covering myself with baby oil and going outside to try to get burned. So I would peel so that for five minutes I would look tan. That was a terrible idea. It was a terrible melanoma inducing idea. So, you know, I think the answer is it's going to be amazing when it's cool to do 10 step routines that involve nothing chemical, nothing harsh and nothing endocrine disrupting. And I do think it's going to move there as people start learning more and more and more about how to take care of their skin and themselves in the least toxic ways. But I don't know. I wouldn't lose sleep over that. Vanessa, what do you think?
1: And I think, Jenny, there's a way to be like, hey, you like want to take good care of yourself. That's awesome. I love that you're figuring out what works for you, what feels good, what makes you like proud to step out in the morning or whatever. But I'm going to set some parameters. And some of those parameters are like, we buy products that are clean, that aren't filled with chemicals. They're probably getting their information from TikTok about what products to use. So, let's check out some TikTok influencers who use clean products so we can help find stuff that I feel comfortable having you put on your growing body. And I think then it's like not judging them for what they find exciting or creative. I mean, the question is who's paying for all these products because some of these kids spend more on their makeup than I do and I earn a living, but you know, that's a negotiation for another time. But I do think, There's a middle ground between it because there's a lot of stuff that kids do that we're like, I don't get this. Why are they spending time on this? But it's better not to judge them. It's better to kind of get in there with them and try to understand what's exciting and interesting about it.
2: And there are a lot of kids who are just um, modeled. They're following the modeled behavior of their parents. So the parents who are living with them or the adults in their home might be doing 10-step routines as well. And their toiletries, their cosmetics might have just as much chemical load. And Mm -hmm. so maybe everyone in the house should sort of think about it a little differently.
0: Okay, so another friend who I spoke to this morning said she has a son who's probably, I think he's a little younger than mine. He's like 13, Um, but he's on the younger side of puberty but she said he seems like he's reverting in a certain way Mm. to like sort of babyish behavior that she finds concerning. Like, like, you know, you have to make me breakfast or, you know, I need you to, can you come into my room and brush my teeth? Like literally acting like a baby, but then he wants to, you know, go off with his friends. And so she was concerned about how to navigate where he is physically and like emotionally and then his actual age.
1: Yeah. I mean, we talk about in the book how kids this age are confusing for a number of reasons, but partially because on the one hand, they're so busy being independent and moving away from us. And on the other hand, there are days when they want to crawl into our laps and snuggle with us. And they're like Elmo that they've had since they were little, or they want to watch like Paw Patrol and you're like wait why are we watching Paw Patrol I thought you like ditched that 8 years ago. So there's there's a dichotomy there that's confusing and we like to frame it like this which is if you are waking up in a slightly different body every morning for several years because puberty now lasts several years not just like the three or four super awkward years that we had and So your body's changing and your moods are all over the place because of the sex hormones circulating in your body and your brain. And your social reality looks different basically every day because we know that middle school and high school, the social shifts are astounding. And you're spending a bunch of time on social media, on phones, in group chats, on TikTok. All this information is being thrown at you. That is a lot to process for a kid whose brain is like still very much under construction. And sometimes they just want us, like they want the reassurance, they want the love, they want the security. Having said that to the child who wants their parent to brush their teeth, for those of us who hated dealing with our kids' teeth when they were three and four and five, that was like my least favorite part of bedtime. I was like, I cannot wait to not have to stand in the bathroom and watch you brush your teeth because it's like basically... I want to poke my eyeballs out. You can say to that kid, I love you and I will sit and hang out with you in your room when you are done. But like you're at the age where you brush your teeth, you deal with your stuff and then we can have time together. You just like, you set a boundary. I think for any parent where kids' behavior is persistently concerning to them, then you seek the advice of a pediatrician. If it's like this week and you're kind of like, what the hell's going on? That's one thing. If it's been going on for a while, then I think you get professional advice about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm just gonna put on my pediatrician hat for a second and say, it's really hard to tell the difference between the anticipated steps through puberty, emotional steps through puberty and a mental health concern. It's just hard. Kids will retreat into their room. Are they depressed or are they just being pubescent? Kids will yell or scream at at much less relevant prompt than they ever did before. Should you worry? Should you not worry? Their appetite changes, their sleep patterns change. You know, when is it depression? When is it puberty? This is hard. This is confusing. But, you know, the infantilization piece is exactly what Vanessa just described. It's this push and pull. Kids, they want to grow up. And then they want to not grow up. And the way that they express that can really vary from kid to kid and from day to day. My advice to this mom would be, you can love that your kid still wants to stay connected to you, but also let your kid know that sometimes infantilizing behavior will drive people away and that As the parent, I'm a safe person and I will always be there and I will always love you. But I just want you to know if you do this kind of stuff with some other people, sometimes, sometimes it makes them not want to hang out so much. So just use words with me and explain to me why you're feeling what you're feeling. And then we can always watch Paw Patrol and it's totally cool, you know, and and sort of no shame, no judgment.
0: As parents, it's very hard to disconnect when your kids are in puberty. I didn't anticipate how hard. I found that this phase was going to be and the emotional piece of it, but also when they're little, like you don't remember being little. The minute they hit puberty, it's like, I found that you're like thrown into a vortex of your own life. And so everything they're going through feels like triggering and scary. And you're like, you know, and there's guilt and there's shame and don't do this because then this is going to... and it's like, you don't want to put your own stuff on your kid and live in fear. But at the same time, it's so emotional. and so scary.
2: Also, it feels very random what they're going to remember and what they're not, because it's very random what you remember and what you don't. I mean, trauma seals. So the the really dramatic stuff you remember really well. But like, I found that through my kids' entire puberty, and both my kids are pretty much out the other end, although their brains are far from being fully developed, but I caught myself wondering, "Oh, is that the thing that's going to get burned in their brain? I right? think that about thing, all the time. Right? Like, <laughs> oh, I what can't believe I just said one? that. <laughs> exactly. Or the the opposite, which is, I wish this was the thing that was going to get burned in their right. brain. And I know it's not even <laughs> landing.
1: Like, it's The not... one good thing I did this week is not going to register. Totally. I mean, so we talk in the book about leaving your baggage at the door because... We all have such strong memories of moments of our puberty, right? There's like entire months that are lost to memory. And then there are particular moments from our own growing up, like that one moment where you started dating that kid for 24 hours before the relationship came to a crashing halt. For instance, just, you know, remembering for a friend, of course, and It's so tempting. Like, let's say your kid then goes into a new relationship or has a crush. And it's so tempting to bring that story of heartbreak into your conversation with your kid. But like, we got to leave that behind and just be there for our kid and not bring all of our baggage into the conversation. Because most often, and, you know, Aliza will say this, they just want us to listen. They just want to be able to unload to us and get on with the business of their day. And if we start unloading to them, then they've got to carry our stuff on top of their own stuff. And it's like too much. So, you know, saying to your kid, oh yeah, I got dumped in eighth grade also. And I still think about it all the time. And I cry myself to sleep sometimes. And, you know, it's devastating. I mean, we can't say that to our kids, but we can say, "Oh, yeah, breaking up's really hard isn't I'm so sorry. Do you want to talk about it?" And they'll probably say, "What, Jenny?
0: No, no. <laughs> you're terrible. Get out of my room.
2: <laughs> yes. you don't even utter a word. A grunt. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it, you, know, I, I think if you have a child of the same sex, it's so hard to differentiate yourself and your experience and not try to like throw yourself in the way of that, that whatever they're going through or to have an opinion, even if it's like, you know, a hundred percent, it's the wrong thing to say and do. And you can also watch it on the other side as a parent to see like how your other parent might be doing it and be like, you know, do you see this? I'm doing that, you know, just because you played this sport doesn't mean he has to play that sport or just because you like that dress and you think she doesn't look good in it doesn't mean that you have an opinion on that. Oh God.
1: The number that of times so that was so close to home, Jenny, the like, how do you tell a kid something's unflattering without like absolutely putting a sword through their heart? Yes, I went dress shopping with my daughter yesterday and I texted Kara, and I was like, Help me, please. And then she had great advice after I was done and had survived (laughs) dress shopping. (laughs) But it is, it's just like, you want to tell them everything and you want them to be everything you hope they can be. And yet we have to get out of their way. And also the people we're co-parenting with, like we can look at them and be like, what are you doing? You're doing this wrong you're doing it exactly the way i told you not to do it and they just look at you and they're like uh-huh and it's it it doesn't matter it doesn't matter and they're going to keep doing it and that's like we're all screwing up all the time and our kids are going to be just fine okay hey, one more Cara, as the
0: boy expert especially i have two boys they're almost 14 and 11 and i read a quote that I thought hit so hard for me there it was like being the mother of boys is like going through the longest and most painful breakup you've ever been in in your life <laughs> And I agree with that so much because you're like, I'm trying so hard to be cool and like to be the cat in the corner. And I'm like, I love you so much. You don't <laughs> want me in your room? Oh, and, uh, you want me to come now? Okay. And it's like, I do. I feel like that all the time. Like it's an emotional swing that in no other world would I allow to happen. And then you're living with these two. I'm living with these two boys where I'm like, hi, you want to hang out with me? And then they don't. And it's so sad and it's so horrible and painful as the mom. How do you get through this breakup?
2: I'm going to make you feel better. Please. She is. Mothers of girls feel the same way.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's (laughs) not what I thought you were going to say.
2: I know it's not. The push-pull is universal. It's independent of their gender. It really is. It has a little to do with personality and temperament. It has a little to do with the way your home is set up, but it's really, it's independent. Now, This tethers to that question the other mom asked you or that we talked about earlier, because the first word that comes to mind for me in both scenarios is manipulation, but it's lowercase manipulation, like the kind of manipulation that's actually good and healthy and testing the bounds of a relationship. Relationships between some parents and kids can feel really like a long breakup, which also is kind of manipulative. It's like they know when they've got us. They know when they can push us away. But it's really very much a two-way street that is where one lane is really big and wide. That's your lane. You know a lot. You know where this is going. You can predict certain things. You can see the potholes. You're like, You're in the big, wide highway lane. And they're on this narrow dirt road. Their perspective is smaller and more local. They're looking one minute ahead, not 10 years ahead. And they're managing all these bumps in the road that are being sort of dictated by their hormones going up and going down. And testosterone in particular is this hormone that we know is associated with rage and aggression. No one will do the study that proves it's associated with silence. Although I mean, like, you know, you can strip me of all of my credentials if that study does not turn out to be true. So it's a very unlevel playing field. You are operating from a place of knowing more. You just are. You are also operating from a place of unconditional love. You love this kid so much. And the bigger and smellier they get, the more you love them. Like I have a six foot tall son and I'm like, come sit on my lap, you know, and he's like, mom, can you go away? I know that feeling. I know that feeling so well. It is part of the foundational experience of your relationship, that push and pull where when they push away, they're pushing away because it feels safe. They're pushing away because you've said, I'm here, I love you, I want to hang out with you, and they feel loved, and then they're like, okay, and now no. The way that I have handled it my own experience, patients have taught me over the years to do this, therapists do this all the time, is to find a way to communicate and connect that doesn't make them feel either vulnerable, annoyed, or both. And for me, the key strategy, this is what Vanessa thought I was gonna say in the beginning, is I will routinely go in, my son's now 18, I will go into his room, I will lay on his bed, he's sitting at his desk or actually he's never sitting at his desk, he's somewhere other (laughs) than his bed. And I will lay on his bed and I will just lay and I will look at the ceiling and I will ask him a couple of questions. We are not making eye contact, but I am in his space And he knows that's a moment where he can tell me something that's going on or he can kick me out and he can be like, you have to go now. And then I'll say, but this bed is so comfortable. I'm just going to lay here for a minute, which is my excuse to let him talk for a second. And when he doesn't take me up on that, or if he does, I let the moment pass and then I go. But that is a very non-threatening. It's some people do it in the car. Some people do it on walks. Some people do it. It's any way of communicating that's not face to face. And it's really non-threatening to them.
1: And the only thing I would add, Jenny, is like, we want to talk about what we want to talk about. They don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about what they want to talk about. So it's like we have to get well-versed in their language, which means talking about fantasy football and more fantasy football and I don't know, whatever situation is happening in school that we think is like ridiculous but they find endlessly exciting and fascinating right it's like all of the stuff that we're like ugh whatever it doesn't matter i want to talk about your future i want to talk about your feelings i want to talk about you as a human being in the world and they're like those are the last three things i want to talk about if you gave me a list of a million things and so we have to meet them where they are i will say i always pick up the phone when my kids call my oldest is 21 and he's like studying abroad. Like if he called
2: right now in the middle of this podcast.
1: Which he normally calls every time I'm recording (laughs) a podcast. And I record like eight podcasts a day and he calls every single time. It's like Samson Bennett. And I do that. Because my mom always picked up the phone and always picks up the phone when I call. And even if we feel needy and even if we feel like the girl they're about to dump on their ass and then talk to their friends about it for like a week about how lame we are, in the end, it makes them a more secure, happier, healthier person that they know there's one person in the world who will always show up for them, who will always answer the phone. It's not good for our egos. Like my ego was like a lot better before I became a parent, but it's great for the human beings we are raising and we can start a support group of parents who've been dumped by their children because it is
0: I feel like I'm again, to go back to a dating reference with my two sons, I'm like, Oh, you guys are into football. Well, now I am too. Okay, cool. We're going to do that. And I've like been... Did you start a league? I learned football. Literally everything. We went to a sports bar last night. We watched. We are all in because it is like the only thing that they can a not fight about.
1: Yes, and that that
0: I can join them in. And so I was like, oh, here's the here's the place
2: that like is my
0: here's my place in. And so that's what we do. Do you have a dog?
1: We don't not yet, but I don't tell them we're getting. Okay, so don't tell them, but I will say the dog is like. I think it will be very good for us. It's the meeting place in our house. No matter how grumpy or how sad or how tired or how happy my kids are, it's like everyone grab. And our dog is like sucks. Like he's so badly behaved. He's so annoying. He's like terrible. He's really cute, but he's terrible. And yet we all gather around him, and that is when my kids talk. Or they don't talk, but they like will cuddle or they will just like be there quietly and calmly. So I know it's gonna really be tough to get a dog, but I really, really. No,
0: it. I, you know, I think we could all use something snugly. I was having that feeling <laughs> as well. Well, ladies, is there anything? I'm trying to think if there's anything. I mean, there's so many things I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about porn, I wanna talk about drugs, I wanna talk about like boundaries around, you know, what you're, curfews and things, but we could talk forever. I feel like we'll have to we'll end come it at back. some point and, and do this again. But if there's any, you know, last piece of advice as working parents that you could give to the working parents out there in our group who maybe feel so stressed and overwhelmed because there is so much, like, I don't know if, if I recognized how hard you have to parent like yeah. how much parenting is an action word, <laughs> and how you have to be—you're doing that—and that's really hard when there's this, and you're recording a podcast, and you want to be at the football practice, and or you have to travel, and your kids are home, and you're too afraid to leave them in the house. Yeah,
2: sorry, I think those, are my, I, those are mine. Those <laughs> are mine. Just wondering if <laughs> those you have small to think. <laughs> questions. Just asking for a friend. Those are small <laughs> questions. I think the biggest take-home. Message that we can give all the listeners is you don't have to get an A. This isn't a graded project here. So sometimes when we can't read everything, know everything, study everything about the very big questions we have at hand, we think, okay, let's just not deal with it at all because I'm afraid to deal with it a little and fail. And the answer is you don't have to do that. You can try towing into something. You can try learning a little bit about porn. You can listen to one of our podcasts about porn and start to understand some of the questions you can ask your kids about porn and when and how. And what you're going to realize at the end of it is you got a lot of years to have these conversations. So you have an endless set of opportunities to try it one way have it not work so well, to see and recognize that, to apologize, to take a do-over and to try it again. And that's going to happen with every single one of the topics you listed and so many more. So my advice is don't feel like you have to get a PhD in every topic that you're interested in. And in fact, maybe let your kids start to educate you a little bit and learn as you go. And when you're, you know, out over your skis and you realize, there's nothing left for you to add to the conversation. You can say, hold, please. I'm going to go do a little bit of research here. And I'd like to circle back and revisit this one. I know a little bit more. And with older kids, you can say, do you want to do the same thing? And I will tell you with high schoolers in particular, that give and take goes a long, long way.
1: And my worries are sitting more as a working parent about to be gone for basically eight weeks with a senior applying to college. And a kid with a bar mitzvah in the middle of it all are logistical, like things falling through the cracks and then waking up to emails and I'm like across the country and it's like, oh, so-and-so didn't hand in this assignment. We're wondering what's happening here. And it's like, well, what's happening is I'm not home to check in with them at the end of the day. So I'm thinking a lot about travel about not being physically present and how I can set up some systems while I'm on the road or out late at night, which I don't like to be. And like Cara said, I've actually started asking my kids how they think we should do it. So like my daughter was like, I don't want to have regular phone calls with you. That's too hard for me to schedule, but let's plan on texting. Whereas another one of my kids was like, I want to talk to you every night before I go to bed, right? So each kid is going to have a different need. So dreamy, Vanessa. That the one wants to talk to me every night. He says that now, but like, you know, let's see the first time I call and he answers the phone, what? And then I'm like, oh. Okay, you can guess which one it is, Jenny. FaceTime
0: while while doing 12 other things. Oh, that was a good question. I should have asked about their brains. And like, how are they have to do everything while listening to something? It's like, you can't just play a video game. It'd be playing a video game while talking to your friends and also listening to a podcast or watching a show. Like, I don't understand the inputs. Like
1: that's got to scramble your brain. The talking to friends while playing is makes sense because it's like that they're get in a the room more. together. I have a rule, a newly instituted rule in my constant effort to manage technology and social media that like, if they're like watching a game, then they're also not on their phone watching videos on their phone because I don't think it's great. Or if they're texting with a friend, then they're also not doing 18 other things on different screens. So... I'm trying it. I think it's hard. I think they're used to having a zillion screens in front of them and I'm trying to institute some limits. But again, they watch us do the same thing, right? Like I'm sitting here, I have three screens at my desk right now, all of which normally get used at the same time. So like, what are we modeling for them? That's the other challenge. So bad.
0: Professionally, Cara, is that so bad? She's about to make
1: us feel bad, Jenny.
0: Yeah. Are you going to, like, how bad is it? What, multi-screening? Yeah. How bad?
2: Well, there's no such thing as being able to multitask because your brain can't do two things at once. So you just task switch. By the way, Vanessa knows because she's with me on Zoom 17 million hours a day. I'm just as guilty of all of this as everyone else. She's
1: just better at hiding it because she has her stuff right here. So it looks I am, like she's making eye contact. I am. Vanessa looks down
2: when she's checking things and I look up and the difference- She's like, that-
1: you can yes. tell because she gets really sparkly. And I'm like, "It's oh, true." she's totally I am reading an email. Just <laughs> as
2: guilty. And the answer is you can't multitask. You can only task switch. And so to do something effectively, you're better focusing on one task at a time. It works better. That includes a conversation. But the other thing is like, I'll sit and try to bond with my kids and watch something they're interested in. And if it's really not that interesting to me, I'm on my phone. And we all have to stop. I mean, it's modeling the behavior. When we think we're bonding with them and we have a device out, let me just tell you, we're not bonding with them. They're getting all the information they need from us right then and there. And it takes a a real wake-up call sometimes, especially as working parents. We can rationalize, you know, till the cows come home, why we're doing that. But at the end of the day, the best advice, which is hard to follow, is put your device away if you want to focus on your kid and show your kid that that's what you do. And then they will be expected to do the same. But don't tell them not to drink and drive when you have a glass of wine in your hand and you're at a restaurant and you're about to get behind the wheel and drive home. Right. So same, same with devices.
0: Model the behavior you want to see.
2: Model the behavior.
0: Parent, be an adult, even when it's not fun.
2: Do the best you can. We can okay. all mess up. <laughs> got it. No shaming. No shaming. At all. <laughs> thank
0: you guys so much. Thank, thank you, you thank Jenny. You. The Puberty thank Podcast you. is fantastic. I love your Instagram, the new book. This is so awkward. Modern Puberty Explained. Thank you for explaining it and being our guide. These thank terrible, you, Jenny. Terrible waters.
1: No, the water's fine. Come on in. We got you. It's going to be just fine. I'm with us. I promise. I like that. Thank it's you. It's like the Andro Lake. It's lovely. It just takes a little time to get so used to as the long temperature. As you get past all just the shells. Don't put on <laughs>
2: goggles.
1: No <laughs> goggles and just watch out for the clam shells. Just yeah. like don't let your feet hit the slimy bottom. And then good, met- good metaphor.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.